you'll watch them take one of these chickens out of the oven. And uh, there's one last little thing they do before they send it out. And that is to just like scrape all of the drippings off the cutting board just straight onto the salad. I know it seems obvious and it sounds obvious, but like that gesture to me has always stood out as, as what makes that place special. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. How fun it was to have our old friend Chris Ying on the show. Chris is a cookbook author, podcast host, and the co-founder and former editor-in-chief of Lucky Peach. He's currently running point at Major Domo Media and co-hosts the David Chang podcast with David Chang. On this episode, we find out about Chris's cookbook writing career, including authoring one of my favorite food books of all time, This Is Not a Joke. We talk about what makes great food content in 2023, working on that show with David Chang, and his big plans for Major Domo Media. I hope you enjoy this great talk with Chris Yang. Chris Yang, this is Taste. What's up, buddy? Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks, man. It's it's so cool to talk to you. Uh, we've known each other for a long time. Um, I haven't seen you recently. I know you you moved from SF to LA. Uh, tell me a little bit about Major Domo uh, Media right now, just from the top, what you've been up to with with Dave Chang and, and the crew there. Yeah, so Major Domo Media is, like you said, a company I uh, am a founder and owner and partner in with Dave Chang and a couple of other people. And basically, <laughs> it is our all-encompassing media wannabe Goliath. <laughs> we are, you know, we make podcasts, we make a show called The Dave Chang Show, we make Recipe Club, we just launched a YouTube channel, we put out a bunch of shows on Hulu, um, uh, a few shows on Netflix. We are trying to carve out a little niche for ourselves in this this very crowded world of, of uh, what do you want to call it? Food? Food media? Food content, food media. Food content. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. That's our, that's our whole our whole steez. I love your, your remit is to disrupt food media. No, I'm, you're, <laughs> you're, you're carving in a niche. You, you built a test kitchen in LA. I, I kind of followed that. Listen, I have to say too, I'm a, I'm a fan of the Dave Chang show that you co-host. You guys um, are really tough on food media. So <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> it's only, it's only out of love. And <laughs> I think it's because, you know, like I, I'm not, I'm not even joking. I think that Dave, Dave more than me is is a, is critical of food media or food criticism or whatever you want to call it because there's no bigger fan or consumer of food media than David Chang. Yeah. Like I don't I don't know that people understand that, but for years and years and years, you know, Dave is not just railing against food critics because he's a chef and restaurateur and and neither am I. Dave would read every critic in every newspaper in the country. Like he, he consumes all of it. It is how I got into food was just through pouring over old issues of Savour and just gobbling up every second of the food network. It is what uh, I fell in love with food through food media. So, you know, when we, we give a little guff <laughs> to, to food media, it's, it's purely out of, out of, uh, 
love. Uh, no, I, and I buy that, Chris. And I, and I think you're the diplomatic one. You're the one who, like, like slow your <laughs> rogue Chang a little bit. I mean, I think the bee in the bonnet with Chang is 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 critics and, and who gets to decide and the means of decision or the means of reviewing. I mean, I think he's he's come up with theories about having, like, you know, a numerical score, 1 to 100, or having, you know, uh, everyman critics. I mean, I think the critics is what he's mostly a little peeved about, it seems. Yeah, and and I I do try to be diplomatic about it because I I do not envy the position that critics are in to try to <laughs> have to deliver this, you know, this review. And I think there's a difference between criticism and review, but they have to give a review uh because they're competing with everything else now. They're competing with social media and Yelp and and just yeah. <laughs> general a different a different world than when food criticism started and I think that Dave is sensitive to you know, the role of the food critic. And you look at, he, he looks at somebody like Jerry Saltz, you know, the, the Pulitzer <laughs> prize winning art critic. And he's, he's just like, why can't we have one of those? Yeah. He's enamored <laughs> you know? with Saltz. And he, he definitely is a Saltz head or Saltz yeah, boy. But yeah. Saltz doesn't have any responsibility to, to no. New York mag to be like, and is it worth your $12? It's not service journalism. Yeah. You know, service exactly. journalism is the, is the trade of the critic. The roundup. I mean, Bill Addison is doing roundups. I mean, he has to. Like, that's his job. Yeah. Um, and knowing Bill, I'm sure he's so happy about. Oh, it. Bill is not happy. We've had him on the show. <laughs> no, Bill. Bill. I mean, but Bill. You know, he's a he's a he's a worker, and that's what's important. But enough about Chang. I want to talk about Chris Ying. Um, I'm a huge fan of your your cookbook work. Um, I want to go over a couple specifically because I just really like your sensibility. You obviously you co-founded Lucky Peach, and that sensibility carried over to Lucky Peach. But let's talk. Both Books to start. You wrote two books with Ivan Orkin, Ivan Raman, and the the Gaijin a cookbook. Tell me, Chris, just a little bit about that pro those projects working with Ivan. <laughs> uh, Ivan Raman is a funny thing. So the very first issue of Lucky Peach was about ramen, yeah. and one of the features in it. And I didn't when when we put out. I should say when we put out the first issue of Lucky Peach about ramen, I knew very little about ramen. I had never been to Japan. I had never had, you know, I could talk about it. I, I knew enough. I knew as much as any other, you know, sort of American ramen eater uh, <laughs> about ramen, but like I had never tasted what I was talking about, mm. you know? And so one of the features we had in that first issue was about Ivan, you know, about this sort of, um, He'll be upset if I call him middle-aged, but you know, middle-aged, yeah, middle-aged, former uh, computer salesman or printer salesman. Yeah, former. Like he, he used. He told me he used to sell whatever <laughs> semiconductors or microchips, and he just had no idea what he was selling. <laughs> I know. Um, but he, you know, he, he worked at he, he worked for I think like Andre Soltner in New York, and he had he was a he was a really established cook. Um, his wife died, leaving him a uh, single father, mm -hmm. and you know he took a job just sort of doing at like a, a, you know, whatever restaurant services type of thing. But anyway, long story short, Ivan ended up in sort of the middle point of his life at the point in, in which, you know, most people are, have, have their stuff together, ended up in Japan, uh, yeah. <laughs> becoming a total ramen nerd. And he opened as a total outsider, Westerner, middle-aged white dude from New York, opened a really successful ramen shop in, in Tokyo. And we did a profile on him and he had this, book that he had been working on but didn't know what to do with it mm. and so i you know i raised my hand and said i'll do that the first time i met ivan was at the airport in japan oh no shit no <laughs> yeah. way and i was like what is this gonna be like and then from there we spent like two weeks in japan i slept on the floor of his like 
20 square foot apartment. <laughs> we just ate everywhere. And like, luckily for both of us, um, you know, I can count on two hands, the number of people, uh, who, you know, I've met in this business of food who I think if I quit tomorrow and never talked or wrote or, you know, made anything about food again, the number of people who would still call me and be like, Hey, let's just talk and catch up. And and Ivan has become like a true, true lifelong Mm -hmm. friend. And as my life sort of evolved and I, you know, I got married and had kids and, um, I started thinking about other books we could do. And this idea of this Gaijin cookbook came up, which was like a lot more about feeding our, you know, growing families and uh, leaning into this thing, right? So like Ivan Ramen is about ramen nerddom, right? It's just, it's really an English language ramen nerd book. And the Gaijin cookbook, Gaijin means outsider. And it was really just about like, Hey Ivan, I think the book you should write should just lean into this like derogatory term that people Yeah, cuz that's call the you. thing. It's such a pejorative. I mean, it's like the it's like considered like the white guy, you could say, but like the outsider in Jap- Japanese culture, but he you really embraced it with a creative angle with that book. I love that book. It's it's solid. Yeah, I think you just have to own it, right? Like that's that's yeah. the whole thing is, yeah. is rather than trying to the worst thing he could do is just pretend not to be that. Yeah. You know, totally. just say I'm I'm Japanese, right? Which he is. Like he is yeah. culturally as Japanese as you can get. Absolutely. So those are the two books. I, I love those books. In. He's also a sneaky, sneaky dope pizza chef with corner slice. That's a great pie. <laughs> he's he's sneaky. He's he's just a good chef in yeah. general. Yeah. And he's yeah. one of these guys, like I know you know these guys, Matt, where it's guys and and guys I'm using as the general term, these people who in food writing and food generally, whether you're a chef or a food writer or or whatever you sometimes run into people where you're like, you're really good at what you do, whether it's cooking or talking about food, but I don't get any sense that you like food. (laughs) (laughs) And Ivan's not that. Ivan's one of these people who you hang out with and just like they make you excited to eat. Oh my God. I remember talking about Noma in Kyoto or was it Tokyo? One of the Nomas and he was just like so hardcore. And Ivan obviously has a vibe of the, he's a vibe (laughs) when you you talk to him about stuff. (laughs) Uh, He's definitely got a vibe. Got a vibe. Um, let's move on to the Mission Chinese Food Cookbook, which is uh, was an early look at uh, an empire that eventually Danny Bowen would run and and run for years. But you were there early in San Francisco. Talk about that book. Yeah, Mission Chinese Food Cookbook is like I, it's written in this kind of conversational style. Yeah. Uh, we did it with Bourdain's imprint at Echo, which you know, because Bourdain was Bourdain, he was just allowed to publish whatever he wanted. And Hmm. this was, I don't know what you want to call it, like gonzo cookbook, because I was there in the kitchen with Danny, you know, when we had Mission Street Food, which was the sort of predecessor to Mission Chinese Food. I was there on the very first day of Mission Chinese Food. I was in that kitchen every single day. These were my best friends. We were doing this together. We were figuring this all out together. And yet I wasn't really a part of it. You know, I was not, I, it became really apparent to me right when we started doing mission Chinese food or when Danny, Danny and Anthony started cooking Chinese food was like basically the exact moment I stopped cooking professionally. Mm -hmm. Cause I was like, Oh, I, you don't need me here. (laughs) Like (laughs) I, I may be the Chinese guy, but like, you don't need me here. I don't, I don't know how to do this at all. And you know, that's like, it was a really unique position to be in to get to tell the story from the inside rather than through, you know, recollections and memories. And we try, I tried to show that in the cookbook where, you know, Danny would, we'd sit down, we'd have conversations, we'd have interviews, and he'd say this and this and this. And then I would say, 
you're a liar, man. <laughs> That's not how it went. Like, let me, let's put that in the book. And I think like that was, that was really, it was a special opportunity for me to, to be able to tell a story in that way. And like you said, sort of like capture this very nascent, insane moment. Um, and as I look back on it, probably top five moments in human history to be alive. You know what I mean? Oh, during food media uh, for food cooking. Just during in that general, time. Yeah. just like 2000, yeah. whatever 2010 in san francisco was if you look if you look at the whole of human history <laughs> respect I one respect. of the best times to be alive i respect right? that like, yeah no definitely. now today we're in top five worst times to be i mean alive. it's but, not know. great yeah 2023 is is definitely like in the lower like i'd say 10 percent lower 10 it's like just below the bubonic plague yeah bubonic i'm thinking yeah the... <laughs> okay so well, let me ask you about my favorite book of yours and i i'm going to just say this the worst of lucky peach was your book that you wrote um as an homage to the tube steak now this was you know really in the in the prime wheelhouse of lucky peach you're doing this book on the side and doing the magazine but what i like chris about this book is you really took the assignment seriously you really you went for it you traveled you have all the great anecdotes and you were smart enough to realize that this book would live longer than the publication you were working at you were like i'm gonna write the magnum opus about tube steaks you did not hold back the tour of of germany still is in my head <laughs> this book talk about it uh you're giving me way too much credit for the the thought process of this book but yeah no i mean the worst of lucky peach you know speaking of the times that you were just describing this was you know restaurants were firing all cylinders the restaurant world was huge right you know this is the era of world's 50 best there's a huge party every year and chefs are crazy celebrities you know it, it's it's caligula <laughs> whatever it's crazy out there and you know us food media types were sort of riding that wave and and lucky peach got a big deal to do four books of about whatever <laughs> and we took a look through all of the back issues of lucky peach and i think largely in part because of my actual uh, abiding affection for sausage and tube steaks of, of all kinds. So much of our content was about sausages. <laughs> it was like <laughs> a disproportionate amount of the stuff we talked about was about sausages. And so we thought, let's do, let's do this. Let's do plus the title. Good God, the worst of like, yeah, you obviously shit. were just like title first, the rest will fall into place. I mean, that's, Oh my God. So much of my career. It's has clever. It, and it, but it really is. I'm going to link to the show notes. The book is still in print. I love that book. I, I have a copy on my, like <laughs> my limited chef, my shelf, I'll say, yeah. um, I, I will recall. Sorry. You were saying that there's a, there's a couple of little travelogues in that book. Yes. You talk about the German, the German one. And I just have to remember, I just have to, <laughs> I have to tell a quick anecdote yeah. about that. I'm, it's all flooding back to me now. I was, we were in Germany, we were in like Strasbourg or something, trying to explore the sort of like Alsatian world of sausage, chacrute garni and all those yeah. things. And uh, I was with the now New Yorker staff writer, Gideon Lewis Krauss, he's a, a very dear old friend of mine, and um, who and my, my art director at the time, Walter Green, who was, you know, all of 23 and and fresh and and a bit of a mascot at lucky peach and like total the most respectful way possible Walter green's a great designer too <laughs> yeah yeah no he was he he was a living breathing uh furry and um we're sitting there and you know i we had done as much research as we could but we're sitting there in in germany wondering where to eat where to get you know sausage and we had no we had, we had literally no uh 
way of, of figuring out where to eat. So I think the three of us, I think the three of us sat there on the couch and started a Tinder account. <laughs> and we're just like, we are three guys sitting on a couch wondering where to eat sausage around here. Like, please swipe right on us <laughs> if you know where we can get some sausage. And I think that, like, the innuendo was too much. Yeah, it just didn't quite any... develop the actual tips you needed. To, yeah, yeah. Your method so, of research. It's funny. That's funny, man. All right, let's go back to your line cook days. Uh, you, let's talk, you're like, when you're quietly reflecting on life, like, there's these quiet moments where you, it can be anywhere and you have children, so maybe not so many quiet, but you have them and you're reflecting on your life and you're reflecting on this era of you as a line cook. What memory pops into mind first? Uh, I'll tell you, I, I had this exact moment yesterday, actually. I was, um, I was downstairs in the kitchen here uh, making Parisian gnocchi. Wiley Dufresne gave us a recipe for Parisian gnocchi. And I had ne- I've never made this dish before. And I was, you know, you, you, know, you, you make basically a shoe pastry. You uh, add a bunch of eggs and cheese to it. Then you pack it into a pastry bag or in my case, a, a Ziploc bag. And you cut off the tip and you sort of start squeezing out dough and you slice it, you know, directly into the water. You're, you're cutting off these little, little gnocchi sized uh, bites into the water to sort of parboil them. And I've never done this before. And I'm trying to figure it out. And it's a big batch of this stuff. And by the end, I feel myself like getting better at it, you know, mm-hmm. where the first one was just like a abject disaster. And I'm just like, I've, I've made one. It's like a giant white poop in the, <laughs> in the water. Nothing is going to plan. But by the end, I've just got this like rhythm. It's like the driving range after the, like that warm up yes, bucket. It's the exactly. second bucket. You you're hit, on, yeah. Exactly like that. Exactly. Now I'm just like striping these balls down the, down the range. And I'm, I'm. I've got this rhythm and the knife, I've got this paring knife and it is like tapping against the, the, the rim of the pot as like, I'm just cutting these sort of like uniform little gnocchi into the thing. And it's the most satisfying feeling in the world to do this task and to feel not to the, nobody's watching me. This I'm not, I'm not, you know, this is not for show. And it's, it's just me trying to get better at this, this, minute very specific task and it it really brought me back and i hadn't experienced that feeling in a long time to standing in the kitchen and just figuring out some ridiculous niche uh move right like if i hold my hand this way mm-hmm. uh, you know and i squeeze the bag with these two fingers it gets a consistent thing if i dip the knife in water it'll go through faster and the, the gnocchi won't stick if i keep like a quick pace like they'll fall right off all of these things that are totally useless to anybody except me making this at this moment like totally specific to this thing and i was having this exact moment you're talking about reflecting back on mm-hmm. on my kitchen time and thinking like wow it's been a long time since i've had this exact feeling of Oh, I've got this task dialed in, and Man. and I, you don't get a lot of that opportunity outside the kitchen. You don't get a lot of that day to day. Yeah, you're not doing like like fifty or hundred white poops like usually a day. So <laughs> that's not like your typical family cooking. I love it. Now, exactly, Chris. Tell me about Recipe Club. Great show. Uh, it's it's just it's fun to listen to you guys debate. Now you have a video component that you know. I see Dave making coconut pie or coconut <laughs> cake and it's just hilarious it's um let me but my question is let me ask you about uh the ideas that come in when you ask your listeners for ideas how bad are they 
<laughs> so recipe club obviously started in the pandemic when we were all cooped up at home and you know dave and i were doing the dave chang show remotely and i came up with this idea that we would you know three of us would all cook the same recipes like a book club in our own homes and this would be a way for us to connect and we'd, we'd talk about how they went you know we do three different recipes for chicken parm and decide which one was the best and at that time we were just sort of pulling recipes off the internet so I think the first episodes we did were like me and Dave and Priya Krishna, we would each pick a recipe and we'd all cook them. And, you know, once we got sort of, we built up a head of steam, we made a whole season of the, the doing it this way. Pandemic kind of simmered down. I had less time in my life to make <laughs> three different turkeys in a week and three different oh my God, farms yeah. in a week. Jeez. And so we, we started revising the show a little bit. And one thing I really wanted to do was, uh, open up the recipe sub submissions to listeners and say, I'm not going to pluck these off the internet. I just want to get your home recipes and we're going to cook those. I, I don't want to just randomly search. I want you to, I want to feel like we're working on a recipe with you. And so that's been the source of recipes since I think uh, two seasons ago or something. And um, terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. We get some, uh, we get some, we get some really, I, I'm going to say this first before I, before I, uh, shit on everybody here <laughs> um we get some really amazing recipes mm -hmm. and we get some that are genuine you know sometimes they come in like literally it's like this is my grandmother's handwriting you know on this yeah. recipe card or you know here's this incredible story of my family which you know we had a chicken wing recipe recently when i was reading the head note and i was like this is the story of my family like this is exactly what happened to my parents and it's crazy that you have this recipe that's bears so much resemblance to my food and then we get some stuff where I'm just like, are you, is this a prank? Yeah. <laughs> you know, is this, and I'm not trying to yuck people's yum. I'm, I'm not <laughs> trying to do that. <laughs> no. But, but why are you eating such yucky things? Yeah. Yeah. And you they know? usually and involve pickles, I'm sure. People just yeah, love throwing it's, pickles it's all, and shit. It's just, oh yeah, it's, it's always like some crazy you know, like pregnancy craving type of stuff. <laughs> um, I've, I can't even blame it on the pregnancy. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I just know. I mean, like, you yeah. know, it's that, it's that vibe, you yeah, know, yeah, pickles yeah. and ice cream type of thing. Yeah. And I, I understand that like, uh, but I, God, dude, I get so many jello salad recipes. Oh, wow. I, I'm sorry. It's not my thing. Okay. I just don't. Yeah. Jello salad's a strange one. I, I, I feel like, you know, pistachio jello salads, pudding salads are, or a thing in like, but yeah, jello salads, people with mayonnaise in them. Oh God. And I'm just, <sighs> no, thank you. Yeah. And so I, listen, I actually think that it's not that people have terrible taste. I think a lot of it is also just people send us recipes they think will be fun for us to cook. They could be fun to see Dave Chang making, you know, the most ridiculous lowbrow things in the world. They think and it is, it is fun to like to see some of these things. And I will say there's always some redeeming thing in each of these. There's always something you get out of doing something you would just never, ever, ever do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't want to do any more jello salads, but the experience of it was like, I get it. Like these, this is, this is interesting how like this was a thing that swept the nation. Chris you know, is such a nice guy, guys. Chris, you, you are optimistic. I, I, you, there's a thread of optimism, which is the opposite of your, of your fellow co-host. Right. Uh, well, listen, I, it's keeping the demons at bay. It's I love just, it. It's my only defense against the demons. How do you put together the show? I feel like the show has a lot of different ongoing segments and this is a little behind the scenes, but I think a lot of our listeners listen to your show. How do you, like, do you have like lineup meeting and just go, or do you just like go? 
because it's very, very, very like live and real. <laughs> for for Dave Chang show, yeah, Dave Chang show. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, unfortunate that you you asked that because <laughs> Dave is always like, we need more structure. <laughs> we yeah. need to have more meetings. We need to like figure out what we're doing. Okay, but you know the the, the reality of it is, you know, we do the show twice a week. And um, schedules being what they are, Dave's being as crazy as his is, and and mine being, uh, you know, equally insane. We have very little time to sort of sit and plot out carefully these conversations. We're trying to get better at it, but you know, a lot of it is. And then you know, on top of it, like whenever we try to come up with bits and and specific segments and topics and games, you know, Dave's living a crazy life, and he's always going to come in hot with something new to talk about. Um, and so, you know, we've learned, we're trying to find the, the, the middle ground, right? We don't want it to be so structured that it feels this rigid thing. Yeah. And, uh, but we also don't want it to feel completely off the wall. And sometimes we, we fall into both sides. of it. But, uh, you have fans of both yeah. sides, I'm sure. Um, it, it is a great show because there is a lot of energy that kind of feels like there's spontaneity, but maybe like some nervous energy. Cause you just know you're on the clock. I love it. Yeah. And and I think like that's it's interesting because like I said, we started doing that podcast together during the pandemic because, you know, I, I wasn't on that show until the, the pandemic started. And it was all completely just in, incredibly raw. And I, I still I spoke to somebody the other night who was just like, you know, I was right there with you. I was having my, my baby at the same time that you were having yours in the middle of the pandemic. And I would just listen to you guys like trying to sort out what was happening, you know, how to buy groceries, yeah. just like how to raise your family and all of this. And, you know, it just, it meant so much to me. And and so, you know, I think that that energy of it, that sort of reality, the candid, this is what we're going through part of the show will always be special to me. Um, you know, obviously we're not cooped up in our homes anymore, um, I mean, not as much, but, uh, yeah. yeah, we're trying to keep that energy while, while not making it just like, what are these bozos going to talk about today? Yeah. And I think when the pandemic ended and the show continued, and I'll segue to my question is like, you then started talking about experiences in restaurants and, and you both are so rooted in the restaurant world. And like, I just, I'm just so fascinated with this ongoing conversation about the evolution of Koreatown in Los Angeles. Um, my next book, Korea World with Dookie, is out next April, and we, we cover some of this change um, in our U.S. section. But you've both spoken at length, and I want to get your take on how Koreatown is moving away from, like, the Wilshire Six kind of corridor, even the Olympic corridor, which, you know, has great restaurants, of course, to, like, Fullerton and Garden Grove. Tell me a little bit mm-hmm. in our, for our audience about Fullerton and Garden Grove and that part of Koreatown. Yeah, well, so Dave has spent more time in in Fullerton and Garden Grove than I have. I actually, I, I although I grew up in Orange County, and yeah. I, uh, I remember my first exposure to Korean food was at some like all you can eat Korean barbecue shop in Garden Grove. So like, I've uh, I was so far ahead of that trend; <laughs> it was not a trend yet. Um, that was like when Sublime but, was talking about Garden Grove. I bet. Yeah, that was. That was like, <laughs> it was even. I don't want to date myself, but it was. I mean, we're both doing it. Before <laughs> it was, uh, but I, you know, the same thing is happening. I feel with with uh, that sort of um, spread as with what happened with Chinatown, and at this point, you know, in everyone's familiar with 
Chinatown generally. And a lot of people are familiar with, you know, the San Gabriel Valley here in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. which is the real Chinatown. Or if you go to, if you're in San Francisco, you know, Chinatown, I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from Chinatown. There's like real tradition and real legacy and real stories that, you know, are still untold. I think a lot of people just want to talk about people will go in San Francisco and see Brandon Jew over at Mr. Jews, which, you know, he's doing an incredible thing, but they're like, well, we got it. That's the story. And it's like, there's actually oh, yeah. an incredible amount of other stories happening here. Um, anyway, that's a digression, but the real, you know, the real, I think uh, the larger community is out in the avenues, you know, out there and, and here it's in the San Gabriel Valley. And, and honestly, moving down here, I think that visiting San, San Gabriel Valley and, Alhambra and things like that. I think you got to go like even further afield where, you know, the, the deep Chinese stuff is in Roland Heights and, you know, Rosemead and, and, mm -hmm. and further, further out there. And I think it is, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, I'm, I'm not, I don't know if you know this, Matt, I'm, I'm not a sociologist, yeah. but <laughs> I think you end up getting, um, all of these, you get this, this spread, this diaspora from, you know, Koreatown and Chinatown because families are, are moving. Families are like, Hey, it is pretty expensive to live in the middle of the city. Like, let's not forget yeah. that Wilshire is in the middle of the city. Oh, I mean, and, yeah. You're like 4k, 4k for one bedrooms off Wilshire. Yeah. It's like, yeah. And, and Chinatown in San Francisco is right in the middle of the city. Yeah. And you want to move out like, like so many families do out where there's more room and yep. you know there's better schools and and you move into the suburbs into Fullerton into Garden Grove into Roland Heights Monterey Park whatever it is um and that the culture comes with you you know so i think i think it's the same thing is happening with with a lot of like the korean food and uh, that that has happened with Chinese food over the years. Let me ask you about Los Angeles in general. Are you like a creature of habit with your dining uh, patterns, or do you do you look like to explore and go to like the fuckboy restaurants and like wherever West Hollywood? <laughs> or are we, what's your style of dining? What's good right now? Uh, uh, I could. I mean, what am I natural? My natural inclination is to be a creature of habit. I'm like, I, I like my spots and I like to stick to them, which has only been exacerbated by having two children. Mm -hmm. Uh both from like a time and financial management yeah. position. It's, it's, it's impossible for me to get out to a lot of restaurants now. Like that's like, I, I, I proudly wear on my sleeve. Like I have been extremely fortunate to have one of like the best eating careers uh, hmm. imaginable. We'll get you into know, that. I've Your James Beard award judge <laughs> badge I've of honor. I've eat a lot around the country and around yeah. the world, but in LA, like with where I am in my life right now with two young kids and everything, um, you know, we, we don't, my God, I work in the same building as pizzeria Bianco. Uh, my wife at one point early on. So I work, I work near pizzeria Bianco near young bond society near mm -hmm. gorilla tacos, right in this sort of like arts district, whatever. Yeah. And <laughs> there is a, all, all amazing restaurants. But within the first few months of moving to LA, um, my wife was just like, I, I, uh, can we go somewhere that's not Young Bond Society again? Can we go somewhere that's not Pizzeria Bianco? She's like, and so now I'm trying, sweet I'm trying green? really Can we hard. just go to Sweet Green? <laughs> exactly. Can we just go to Cava? Anything. Can we just go to Cava? You know, and she's like, is there another neighborhood that exists in LA other than the neighborhood <laughs> immediately around your office? Yeah. And uh, so I have been trying to make more of a point of, 
you know, spending time in cool neighborhoods, <laughs> seeing cooler restaurants. And I actually, I actually, I, I, I can, you talked about Bill Addison earlier and I never hit up Bill mm -hmm. for this kind of thing. I think like hitting up a food critic to ask for restaurant recommendations is like kind of a faux pas. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? It's just like, do your, do your job yeah. free and per personalize it for me. It's like a peer. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to give you my secrets. Like you can read me every, exactly. every Saturday in the paper. Exactly. And yeah. and even if, even if I'm not going to take a seizure, it's also just like, this is what I do for a job. I don't want to do it for you. Yeah. Just like the concierge shit. Job. Yeah. But I did. <laughs> I texted him and I was just like, I texted him and I said, I respect you too much to bother you with these kinds of questions, but I'm sleepy and can't think. Where can I take Jamie and the kids for dinner? Well, I, where I will receive credit for having taken my wife to a cool, fun neighborhood in LA and not just a strip mall in San Gabriel Valley or Koreatown or near my office. And he recommended a bunch of places and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how you classify these restaurants, but we ended up going to... It totally bonkers off the wall place called Poltergeist, uh, which is like whoa, a zany restaurant inside of a arcade called Button Mash. Oh yeah, so uh, that I know that spot exactly. Yep, yeah. and, and it was totally insane. And like, I think it gave me it made it made me feel hopeful in in some ways where I was just like, man, uh, some of this is hitting and some is not, but they are not afraid to do anything. Yeah, Poltergeist. I don't. I don't know that one. That's not on my radar. That's cool, man. I mean, Bill. Bill. Yeah. Bill is a, a sweet guy. I'll link to our episode on the in the show notes because he's he's really he's cool like that. Um, let me ask you about living in the Bay Area. I feel like you lived there in a very special time. Uh, you mentioned actually you were like this is one of the top five times in the history of civilization. So um, you you agree. But I wanted to ask you about Judy Rogers. Um, her passing is actually, it's 10 years in December, which is amazing to think about. Wow. Um, and her book, Zuni Cafe, the cookbook uh, Zuni Cafe, comes up a lot in conversation with our guests. And I just wanted to get your take, Chris, because I know you have one about the legacy of Judy Roger Rogers. Yeah, so I think there are a few books and a few characters that sort of define California cooking. And I think that that gets it gets sort of bandied about and sort of misinterpreted, uh, not least of which by my own Dave Chang. <laughs> um, but you know, there was there was something truly revolutionary and artistic about what they did what Judy and Alice and, and uh, Jeremiah did to sort of just say like, this is, this is what we are. And it, and it is cooking because we are chefs and we say so. And this, the, the simplicity of it, which is not to be confused with easiness. Right. And, and I think about the, the Zuni cafe cookbook and, and Zuni generally, it's easier probably to talk about Zuni as a, as a restaurant. And Zuni is most famous for their, you know, wood fired whole chicken um, served over sort of like a uh, bread salad, a panzanella ish salad. And there's, it's, it's a roast chicken. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like one of the most common things in the world. And, but like the, the way they would do it and the, and the little moves and, and I'll, I'll point to one gesture and, and I don't think it has to do with the cookbook or anything, but it definitely is something that trickles down that only happens because it trickles down from, Judy to the chefs to the sous chefs to the cooks and is passed on from one generation to cooks to the next in that restaurant. And you'll, you'll watch them take one of these chickens out of the oven 
and and hack it up on the cutting board and they they present it in like six or eight pieces on top of the salad and uh there's one last little thing they do before they send it out and that is to just like scrape all of the drippings off the cutting board just straight onto the salad and i know it seems obvious and it sounds obvious but like that gesture to me has always stood out as as what makes that place special it yeah. is that's the good stuff and the most obvious thing in the world is to is to slide all that good stuff onto the onto the chicken and so that's what makes the place special all like the little accumulation of small gestures and 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 moves like that and besides that like man that restaurant is on market street uh not the most beautiful neighborhood in the world but yeah it's kind of gone a little bit in a different direction these days it's in the it's in the thick of things it is at the exact nexus of the mission and hayes valley and mm -hmm. downtown and the tenderloin and it's got the zinc bar and if you can get the corner table uh with the windows like in the lights filtering in my god <laughs> I love you know it's a beautiful space to, to go into and you 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 really do remember the, the the ambience of the room. I think your point is so taken about how you know that salad is dressed with the chicken bits and the and the and the drippings because that's like pure restaurant cooking right there. That's a like ala minute salad. That's something if you if it sits too long on those greens, you know mm -hmm. that's that's a different salad. If you're if you're doing a dinner party and you try that trick, it's just going to be wilty and not great. You need to like run that to the table once that yeah. hits. And exactly and that is that's the whole that's the whole thing right is is you know there's some precursor to sort of like this is going to sound insane but there's some precursor to noma and the sort of time and place of everything where it's just like this has to be here now yeah and you have to eat it right now yeah. and i was actually having dinner with with uh josh Skeens last night and we were talking about that sort of immediacy of of cooking and i think like you know, he thinks of himself as a California chef. I think of him as a California chef. And I think the defining thing is like the deliciousness and the immediacy of you have to eat this right now, whether that means like a perfectly in-season pluot or this, like you said, the chicken drippings going on the on the salad right this second. That always takes precedence over let's meticulously plate this. Let's do this perfect and make sure it's, you know, let it, at the expense of it dying in the past, it's got to look perfect. It's and so look. that, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's all about immediacy. Yeah. Just skeins at a uh, Saison, man. One of the legendary restaurants. Um, yeah. In our, during our, Absolutely. in our, in our day. Okay. Speaking of restaurants and I alluded to this, um, man, when you were a James Beard restaurant judge, that was like a fucking crazy job. And, and I respect it. I'm a judge now, but I, it's much different. They've changed it. You, you guys ruined it for all of us. <laughs> Joking. But, uh, no, you guys did an awesome job and you were always on the road. Tell me about that, that process as being one of the, the few James Beard judges at the time. Uh, it was a, it was a really strange situation for me. So at the time, <laughs> and I actually, I don't remember how, I don't know how it works now, but at the time you had, you know, like 20 something committee chairs and each of us had a region and three, four times a year, we would get together to, uh, meet and discuss things, uh, discuss restaurants, build out the semifinalist list, review all the votes, um, you know, nominate restaurants, um, and, and just debate for three days in a, in a conference room. Mm. Like we sat in a windowless conference room in Hawaii for uh, uncountable insane. hours. That's insanity. Was, windowless. 
<laughs> it was truly, it was truly, truly, truly mind-boggling. Demented. Um, but you know, it was it was a weird, it was weird for me, right? Because I was not, I'm not a restaurant critic. No. And you know, I've done a little bit of restaurant criticism for the Chronicle. I wrote, you know, a, a few pieces for for um Paolo when he was editing there. And uh I'm really proud of those pieces. But like this wasn't my bag. I didn't, I didn't review restaurants. And I was the only one in the room at the time, really, who was not, who didn't have sort of like an active restaurant critic job or expense account or anything. Um, that was the other thing is like, you know, you're, there's no budget to eat. You just, you, you eat on your own dime. Yeah. Um, but uh, I actually, you know, I, I've talked about this on the Dave Chang show. Um, I'm sure I'm in violation of some NDA somewhere, but like, I walked in the room my very first trip. I don't remember where it was, somewhere in the Midwest, because that was the other thing. The James Beard, like the committee, um, which had, you know, Bill was on this. I met some of my very, very best friends on there. You know, Bill was on there. Jennifer Cole was on there. All, lots of lots of people, mm -hmm. Tina Antolini, like people I really love and respect are on this committee. Um, you know, you go to cities that we're, most of us are not generally going to get to, you know, and, and we want to show some love to places that, you know, they're not forgotten corners by any means, but like, I don't have a lot of business reasons to go to Minneapolis. And so I'm not going to get there unless we all go there and we spend three or four days eating as many Russians as we can, trying to get a, a, a dial that city in and, and understand it better. Um, so I walk into this room somewhere in the Midwest and I was like, I'm the only not white person in this room, mm. <laughs> you know? And, yeah. Ooh, problem. Uh, Big problem. I, I think, I think years later, um, we, that that changed dramatically in the in the years I was on the committee. You know, we 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 brought in a lot of people um, who who mixed things up. But like at one point, somebody said something to me that was like, "Oh yeah," and Chris was like the first not white person ever on the committee. And I was like, "Why would you guys tell that's, me that? Uh, Saddle me with that? That's that's so much. That's yeah, so man. much." And um, but no, it was it. You know, the 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 beards went through a lot. Uh, it's been tumultuous for them and. You know, I, I, I've dropped out of the loop of all of it. Yeah. You, um, you, you did your duty. It is a volunteer organization. It's not like you were getting paid big bucks and you put a lot of time into it. I wanted to bring it up mostly for that because it really was a time of, uh, of real like sacrifice. You guys were trying to do it right, do the right thing. Obviously the dynamic of the judging pool changed and got better, but it wasn't a volunteer organization as it remains today. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was all volunteer and man, if I can say anything for the people in that committee is that like they all cared so deeply and passionately about the, these, these awards. And I, I think that like whatever happened with the awards and whoever was to blame for shortcomings or whatever, 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 like I can confidently tell you like the people in that room gave such shit <laughs> about yeah. like they cared so deeply about getting it right. And more than that, man, Every single conversation we had in that room was like, who are, who are the people we're celebrating? Are we missing something here? You know, we would push, we, we'd push so hard on so many threads, you know, like you're, you're a, you're a, a, a Korean food guy. Like, yeah, I remember having this whole extended argument <laughs> in that room, not argument debate. Yeah. Uh, where Spirited. I was like, I know, I know that the, I know the list of like semifinalists for restaurant service is closed. But I just have to say, we have ignored entirely the entire genre of Korean restaurants where the server literally cooks your food for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, stands there and cooks the food for you. And not only that, if you need something, you push a button and they come running to your table. And I understand they're not like 
chatting you up and they're not just giving you, you know, the, <laughs> the talk about the provenance of the chicken or whatever it is. But like, no, it's fucking work. As far as service goes, like nobody's working harder than. Yeah, like, man. You go to like Young Mani, you go to Young Mani in Koreatown and like you push that button and there's someone there within 30 seconds and yeah. grilling your 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 cho- uh, gopchang and and fuck man like i i respect that you brought that up and it, it for clearly it, for a period it korean food was ignored by the james beard foundation that's obviously changed the auto mix winning the state of new york uh, award this year and and many being nominated so that evolution is is quite interesting that you bring that that one up yeah for sure and I, like i said everyone was very receptive to that kind of discussion and and you know i think that it's I'm not going to linger on this, but like, I think that the impulse in food media to sort of right the wrongs of the past or that the overlooked things of the past sort of immediately. Yeah. Um, oh man. Is, is kind of vicious. And I, and I think that like, it's a little bit dishonest to just expect that you're just going to erase, you're going to fix everything tomorrow. And, and I think like there's there has to be like a process to it, and there has to be sort of like um, not not because I want to slow it down. I want the change today, but like people want to sort of backfill. Yeah, you know, that's the, a good the good word. Backfill is a word that, and I, and I totally agree with you, Chris. I think that uh, some of these pronouncements and these these moves um, are good in spirit and heart, but. It seems like the timelines are are are, in, are crazy and have put people. Yeah, let's just let's pe- let's sometimes you just gotta like, sit in your guilt a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah, no <laughs> doubt. But it puts people in weird spots when they're also highlighted, maybe a little prematurely. Um, I agree. That's the one thing about awards is if, once you get those awards, your life changes, and you got to be ready for it. Um, it's it's a great conversation, and we could we could go on a, a more. But um, I want to close with on this is taste. We ask guests about their discerning taste. So, Krista, close this interview. Here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. Are you ready? No. Okay. I I, res- <laughs> I respect the honesty. You've been honest throughout this conversation. The best breakfast. Um, the best breakfast is Taiwanese fantuan, rice rolls around. Yeah pork floss and and yo i'm gonna link to a pork floss article we wrote about four years ago i love pork floss holy shit do you have it at home in a in a jar just waiting uh we try to but my children just <laughs> eat it by the pawful it is outrageous we have like a big bucket of it not a yeah, jar a it's bucket. a bucket right you get it by like the kilo and they just jesus lord man <laughs> so it is good. they're ravenous the best dessert um ice cream on top of something warm yeah the f- your favorite way to use chocolate? Just in the bedroom, Matt. Just <laughs> body chocolate. Body chocolate. You know, Chris, we're just going there. I appreciate it. We're well 45 into the article or the episode, and man, we're just doing it. Um, the best bread. Uh, you know, I have like a you know how there's like food trigger words, like you see it on a menu or something. Like moist. Just like I, I, I yeah. <laughs> opposite of that. <laughs> different kind of different kind okay. of trigger words. Like that's a trigger in in like I got to get out of here. But there are trigger <laughs> words where it's just like chicken wings. Okay, I'm ordering. I don't whatever yeah. could just be the worst chicken wings in the world. Want to do it? If I see a flatbread of almost any sort, like I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. So yeah. I've been in a real flatbread kick, and that's like. The world of flatbread is 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 uh, boundless. I mean, there's so, no better way to have che- melted cheese and fruit than with a flatbread. I mean, come exactly. on. Yeah. 
Your favorite yeah. American fast food chain? Oh, crap. Um, my favorite American fast food chain. Oh, man. Probably Popeyes. Definitely. Now, the biscuit, do you eat it upside down or right side up? There's a reason I'm asking. Uh, I've recently learned that I eat all biscuit and bun-shaped things upside down. Meaning top down. Yes. That's the only way to eat a Popeye's biscuit, which is the single greatest fast food menu item in our country. I fully agree. That is my favorite fast food but as well. Here's the, but the thing is, I don't think I'm doing the... Why, why is the... why? Okay, let me ask you first. Why does the biscuit have to be eaten upside down? Because the top is where all the flavor is, and you got to put that top on your tongue. I mean, it is the perfect... <laughs> It is like the so, seasoning on that top is like there's nothing better than that seasoning. So I recently learned that I'm a weirdo. Mm. Um, and when I go to grab a hamburger, I go thumbs on top, <gasps> three fingers supporting the bottom. And then as I bring it to my mouth, I invert the whole burger and <laughs> eat it upside down. And it, this was pointed out to me <laughs> as the act of a crazy person. It's, but I just thought it was natural to pick things up where you you want to like a baby. You got to support its little butt, and then you <laughs> you hold the top and you flip it over and you eat it. And it's just how I how I do things. So the biscuit being eaten upside down is incidental. You're just like a left handed golfer. I mean, that's it's just like you're not. You're just a little different. I know. You're a little I different. Know. You know, Wimpy from Popeye. Wimpy would eat it. His hands, I think, is where I learned it. I think he had his hands inverted. I have to look back at that. Well, me and Wimpy. You Just and Wimpy. Same, same burger style, same body shape. <laughs> a couple me more. Name a chef you would like to train under, if you could train under any chef. Um, you know, I haven't, I, uh, you know, like, I, I think that I've spent a little bit of time, I haven't spent, like, a lot of time training formally under anybody but i was um when i was in china in sichuan working on on mission chinese uh we got we met the chef yubo there yeah man tight and uh you know he the food he served at his restaurant there was like sort of a um you know interpretation of classics and and, and you know kind of like avant-garde sort of very playful you know alinea-esque stuff you know like here's a this this edible paintbrush that you dip into this sauce and then you eat the, you know, the top of the brush type of thing. But the dude had such a grasp of the basics of Chinese food, of, of Sichuan food rather, like just what a proper Mapo tofu should be, what, you know, a, a, a proper, uh, you know, all these like jellies and things like that. And as a, as somebody who cooks a lot and has like learned a lot about, you know, Japanese food, about, uh, <laughs> sausages about everything who, who like I've spent so much time learning about how Nordic food is made I'm embarrassed like at what a hole there is in mm. my knowledge of Chinese food not you know uh, the Chinese like home cooking Chinese food like I do that all the time but like proper proper Chinese food banquet style like banquet style, style right and, and I just think like a lot of people myself included sort of like write it off as too mysterious and too difficult um and i think i think the training with somebody like yubo would be my that's my that's thing. that's great well last one your favorite sandwich uh 
my favorite sandwich. I don't know. Right now, I'm just I'm I'm I really wanted to eat an egg McMuffin this morning, but oh. I didn't get to it. But <laughs> dude. I don't know. That's not my Canadian favorite sandwich. Bacon. I can't say it. I can't say an egg McMuffin. Canadian bacon. No, no, no. Sausage. It's gotta be sausage. Gotta Come be on. sausage. You're talking to the worst guy here. You're talking about the biscuit then? Or are you talking sausage on the McMuffin? Sausage McMuffin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the guy. That's, that's the a good guy. sandwich, but I think, you know, uh Bon Me is my favorite sandwich. Oh, me too. Number one. We drafted about two months ago. That was my number one. Chrissying, what a pleasure. Dude, thank you so much for joining this is taste. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Rizzoli Bookstore. Uh, thanks for being here uh, for another installment of Taste Live at Rizzoli, our event series uh, with the wonderful Taste podcast. Um, we're joined tonight by Jordan Michaelman and Zachary Carlson, the co-founders of Spreads.com, the world's most popular coffee publication and authors of the new book, But First Coffee, a guide to brewing from the kitchen to the bar. Um, and our host tonight is Matt, uh, Matt Rodbard, editor-in-chief and founder of Taste. Um, so we're very lucky to have all three of them here. Thanks a lot. Well, I first want to just thank these guys for coming in. But for, we have a couple additional events uh, that I'd just like to, to announce. And also on the show, we're taping a live podcast. November 1st, we have Jin Gao here. She's the author of the, the book of Szechuan Chili Crisp. And on December 5th, we have Nancy Silverton and Ruth Reuschel in the house. So... Definitely reserve those dates. But here, we're here to talk about Buffer's Coffee. And I, you know what? This is the second time we've done this in front of a live audience. That's true. And it's an honor to be back. We are great fans of your podcast, Matt. And it's very fun to get to come back and do this again in New York City. Thanks, Jordan. I'm a great fan of you filing your copy for Taste on Time. And Zachary, I'm a big fan of Sprudge. Thank you. So it's a love fest here. Now, I wanted to start... Uh, about your book. One of the book's primary thesis is written in the introduction, quote, one bag of coffee can be deployed in dozens of ways throughout all hours of the day, yielding often surprising and delicious results. So to start, each of you, and I'll start with you, Jordan, what was the surprising result that you found when you were actually writing this book? You know, you've, re you've run Sprudge for a decade, over a decade, 11? 14 years. 14 Sorry, bad, bad math there. But, but tell me, each of you, what, what did you learn by writing this book? Yeah, so uh, I think a lot of the work that we do um, at Sprudge involves platforming other people, other people's voices, editing other writers, finding stories around the world to tell, and doing it in a way that shows that coffee deserves journalism, that coffee should get treated the same way. All these other kinds of delicious things we enjoy get treated. Um, very little of what... We normally do in publishing Sprudge uh, has to do with telling people how to actually make coffee. It's more about showing you where to get great coffee or giving the microphone to people who very much do know how to tell you how to make great coffee and kind of platforming that. Um, but for this, where the task was like to write a coffee cookbook, that was sort of the, the brief for the idea, it meant that we got to play with coffee in our kitchens, play play with it as recipes, think about it from the perspective of we love cookbooks, we love drinks books, we love this kind of stuff as like readers and consumers and getting to put that hat on a little bit, um, which is an entirely different way of thinking about coffee to get to really think about like what would you do with it. Um, so for me, one of the things that I thought was fun and surprising and like very kind of gratifying was we knew we wanted to have a coffee spice rub. 
that was like in the proposal, like a coffee spice rub. Um, Cause there's so many that you can buy in the store, but couldn't you make one yourself? Or are we simply going to King make like the best one and recommend it? Or, or what are we going to do? And we tried lots of coffee spice rubs and there are some very good ones that you can buy in the store, but we can't kept coming back to this idea of like, if you have a bag of coffee, what are all the things you can do with it? One of the things you can do with it is make an awesome spice rub. And we hit on this idea of saying like, really what you're doing is, taking your own favorite spice rub, which is a very personal thing to people um, and often is passed down through families or is like something that becomes part of a family tradition. People have very strong feelings about spice rubs. And we're really just saying add fresh ground coffee to that and like do it in a ratio where the spice rub and the coffee are together and being rubbed onto specifically like a piece of fish or, or a piece of steak or um, works really great on tempeh. Um, and when you cook it, you get to have this nice moment where the coffee sort of extracts in the pan as you're cooking it. You wind up with this beautiful sort of like coffee pan sauce as you're cooking and it's delicious. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that to me, like in all the different ways we tried it of like we played with instant coffee and spice rubs. We played with kind of building our own rubs around coffee with all these different sorts of things. But this thing of saying like just use what you already have, grind really yummy coffee, mix it into a rub and like make stuff with it was really good. I love that response and it really is indicative of this book how the kitchen is – it like lives in multitudes. Like it's not, it's not just making coffee. It's literally a rub and cooking with coffee, which is really skilled. It's hard to do. Zachary, what's your answer? What did you learn? I, uh, I was just surprised at how like going back to all of these brew methods, uh, I believe there are nine, uh, or 10 brew methods, uh, in total and going back to each one, uh, applying brew methods that were tried and true. And then like just kind of veering, uh, either direction with the variables, like how how much coffee to add, how much water to add, the temperature of the water, and then just kind of realizing how forgiving all of these brew methods really are and how, like, you can kind of hit a sweet spot, um, but you can really play around with those variables. And, and, and like, like with the French press, like, just I was raised, you know, four minutes is the brew time right. for a French press, but, like, you can go ten minutes, the coffee's still good. What's your uh, what's your routine? Let's just get that. I want to hear. I want to hear about that because we all think about coffee in many ways. We have some professionals in the audience. We have some novices here, and coffee routines mean different things. But what is yours? My routine in the morning is to make a uh, like a full batch uh, in my eight cup OXO like the uh, uh, coffee maker. Yeah, push button. Push button. It's, the button. It's it's, it's two two buttons, two buttons, and then it's done. And the coffee is delicious. Uh, and then if, if I have a special coffee, uh, I will make a Chemex for myself. Okay. But yeah, that's my... I like it, Jordan. I have a Technoform Mocha Master mm-hmm. uh, home brewer, and I've used that line of home brewer at home for almost every cup of coffee I've drunk at home for the last decade. Um, and I really like that it has this sort of... It completely takes the variable out of it. We're very fortunate to get to try lots of cool different roasters and cool coffees. And the Technoform is so kind of steady eddy and predictable that you're really mm-hmm. taking the, the variability out of it and just feeling like you get to taste the coffee or yeah. just get to taste the roaster expression of the coffee. But I love when like when we tape our podcast or we get together to work once or twice a week when Zachary makes a Chemex because he makes a really good Chemex and then I get to drink it and it's delicious. Yeah. Do you have, so with the Chemex, what do, what's, what's your, let's get it for the, the, the audience, the, the listener. What's your ratio for Chemex in the book? 
Uh, oh, in the book, uh, good question. Um, it's like a, I'm putting you on the spot, or, I, or or whatever. Just what do you? Shall we read from the chat? We could. Yeah, I've got my bongos. We can do a dramatic reading <laughs> yeah. of the recipe. No, just in general, when you think about Chemex, do you have a general philosophy with that apparatus? Well, I do. I mean, I I've been doing forty grams of coffee, six hundred mils of water, forty sixty. Okay, um, but like medium to rough. Uh, or not? Something me, medium. I'm not leading the a witness. Ni- here. A nice medium. Uh, again, very forgiving. You know, uh, and and it's fun to really play with those variables, coffee to coffee. Um, but yeah, a, a medium is usually yeah. where I go to. Right. And then uh, it's a three and a half minute pour, uh, four and a half, five minute right. draw time, and uh, typically a very nice. Cup, yeah. cup of coffee. Absolutely. Let's talk about two moments with Sprudge. 14 years and then 2018 when you published your last book. What has changed the most since when you launched Sprudge 14 years ago with specialty coffee, with coffee journalism, with generally the way that we as consumers drink coffee? I know it's a big question, but I think you can answer it. I think you're up for it. I think that specialty coffee has won. Love that. It, in, I love that. In 2009, it was so hard to find it. And you had to be in most, for the most part, in kind of big, cool cities in cool parts of town. And it was very subcultural. And it had especially been like that. I mean, back to th- throughout the aughts. But even by 2009, when we started it, it was still, it really felt like it was the tip of the spear. And now, the entire spear is lodged in the animal and it's running around. I mean, like it's, <laughs> it's everywhere. And, and um, almost any city in America, all over America, and we have several kinds of styles of stories that we do at Sprudge, often that are submitted by readers for things like we do a build-outs of coffee series every summer. And we've, we've done this since 2010 that's focused on new cafes that are under construction around the country. And um there's no geographic boundary. There's no population density requirement. There's no dominant background or culture. I mean, it's from every swath of life and, and urban life and, and in America and, and rural life in America um, where there's this sort of identifiably third wave kind of sprudge looking cafes. Right. You got the sprudge starter kit, which <laughs> I've joked about. You've joked sprudgy, about. Sprudgy cafes. Sprudgy cafes. Um, <laughs> uh, and... That is very different from when we started in 2009. Very, very different from when we started in 2009. Do you think, to follow up, that there is a... Do you think that the money has has followed the fans? I guess that's a way to put it. Like, Do you feel like since then people have actually invested money into especially coffee? Or is it just a general sense that people actually, the culture caught up with like the nerddom and the the real especially coffee heads back then? I think we like to be really careful on that answering side of it because we're not cafe owners. We're not on the business side of it. And um, so much of what we do is reporting on kind of what's happening out in the world. But it's like, you know, you're only ever reporting on the tip of the iceberg. There's all these other stories that are kind of underneath it. But I do think that... Um, it can make um, businesses have seemed to be successful. I mean, you know, coffee, you talk about what's different from, from, from 2018 to now. I mean, the pandemic was this huge shakeup that had all these impacts across food and beverage and hospitality and all these big, deep, meaningful ways. But like coffee was sort of weirdly positioned to, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, um, not just like survive, but, but thrive, but grow, but like be, but like be okay, serve coffee out the front door and, and, and be okay. And, um, that's something that I think has even just sort of continued to, 
double, triple down on the growth of, of specialty coffee becoming like the ubiquitous part of, of life in, in America. Yeah. Anything to add, Zachary? Uh, well, like, uh, like, like cold brew is like a, a household term. My now. gosh, yeah. And, and, and people know and want cold brew and, and cold brew is, is, is available just about anywhere. And uh, cold brew is a great product for a business owner to serve. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it holds for a long t- yeah. time and it's, it's easy to serve. You just pour it, uh. That people drink it quickly and they want more quickly, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like real, and, and a lot more folks know what specialty coffee is now. And, exactly. And, and, and look for it and seek it out. So I want to talk a little bit more about home and then we'll segue into cafe. But, you know, this book, you you write openly about your love of the automatic machines. You've, you've said you've, on the stage, you've talked about the automatics and... You give an appraisal of the pod system. It's not dismissed. I mean, it's not like praised, but you give an appraisal. And um, it feels like there's no excuse for us as a culture to to have bad coffee, though some do, and and we, we don't want to be mean to those people, but it, they're just missing out. So each of you, and I'll start with you, Zach, let me, let me know. Let me, let's, let's hear about what is, how can we improve our, our home coffee routines? How can we as citizens who love specialty coffee, but maybe we're, me, we're missing something? Uh, invest in a grinder is a great way to start. That's a great point. Yeah. Uh, just a little thing like that can really go a long way. Uh, and and it will make your coffee taste Better, it'll make your coffee last longer. So you're you're saying when you be more specific about what do you like? What are we doing wrong with our grinders? Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, what are we doing wrong? Uh, well, a blade grinder is a very common household uh, appliance, and it's it's great for for milling spices uh, in a pinch. But it's great for waking up your entire house. Great for waking up your entire house. It is it's very loud. The best is that sound. But it takes it, it takes a really special touch to get a consistent grind with a blade grinder, and I know it's possible because I've I've seen folks do it, and 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 you can do it. But it's just it's so much easier to use a burr grinder. An yeah. electric burr grinder is great, even a hand mill. Yeah, the hand mill's cool. Like definitely, uh, you know, it's it feels like it's obviously analog. You can travel with it, and yeah. it's kind of nice to to get your grind done in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that like like uh, if you have a if you have a Mister Coffee, and if you're if you're if you're liking your coffee, uh, but you want to step it up a bit, uh, a, a grinder would be a great way to start. All right, Jordan. So improving coffee grinder. What else? I'm gonna get more philosophical, if that's okay. I, the best way to improve how to drink coffee at home is to decide that you care. Mm-hmm. Like if you decide that you care, then you begin kind of investigating all the ways to make it taste better. And I think this is true with almost anything. It's true with food. It's true with wine. It's true with so many kinds of things like that we consume in life. Um, Coffee is funny because it's the only thing that one of maybe the only thing that is sort of simultaneously a, a functioning socially accepted addiction and a delicacy. (laughs) And most people, um, and this is even how I think I felt about it when I was in college, uh, sort of don't go any further than the functioning socially accepted addiction part of it, which is Mm -hmm. fine. And you can maybe even kind of refine that a little bit. 
but it's that other part where it dawns on you that it's a delicacy or you decide that you care about that part of it that begins to sort of unravel all of the rest of the kind of stuff. And then, of course, it's this endless world to and, play I mean, in. I'll and, add to that. I love that you just said those two elements. I'd say it's affordable luxury. I it's a luxury. Yeah, sure. You're getting the world's best of something. Is it a, a, you know, is it a cup of excellence rated coffee? It's under $100 for, like, the best in the world. That's of- exactly right. Or even, I mean, like, if you come to New York, um, uh, if you'd like to go eat the best dinner in New York, it's a thousand dollars if you'd like to go drink the best bottle of wine in new york it's a thousand dollars if you'd like to go have the best cup of coffee in new york it's like eight bucks it's eight bucks and it's at drip and nigel price is probably making it just gonna say that he's in the audience (laughs) yeah but But you know what i mean like like that stuff is awesome right like that's that is kind of a a cool thing like it's It's okay to talk about that i think that there is also a push and pull on that of like it's also kind of messed up that the best coffee in new york is only eight dollars like it should be cost more like it should you start to pull on that and you sort of there's a whole world of that to pull the string on too but yeah when we co-edited the coffee issue at taste for 2018 i think we talked about you know equity for farmers and we i mean this is an endless conversation um let's talk about that right now it's a good moment because with eight dollars you know where the pricing schemes of coffee this is a, a tough question but i mean what should how should coffee be priced. Well, I think that that's a really, really, really big question. I think something to kind of pull out a little bit is you mentioned like in the book, there's an appraisal of pods and we're polite about it, we're but very like generous. But we're sort of like care more about all this other kinds of stuff. And I do think there is something about that style of coffee drinking that is kind of desultory and very much like commodifies it or it exists in this weird simultaneously commodified but kind of playing within the tropes of like it being delicious or it being like a flavor that you care about it wants to have it both ways which is weird um but i think what to us like has more possibility and allows you to sort of continue to to unpeel some of this bigger stuff is to like be like treat treat it like a delicacy like really care about it because not only is it capable of all this incredible kind of flavor and versatility which is really what our book's about um but it is also connected to this like citizen like this this uh chain of artisanship as as profound and complex as any wine as any uh product that we consume any kind of delicacy that we consume um uh, and uh should be talked about and thought about that same way so zachary what 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 how do you respond to somebody who's like seven dollars for black coffee like when when someone like says that i mean you hear people say that yeah i mean it makes me kind of like it makes me go a little crazy but what do you how do you respond uh i $7 Seven dollars is 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 a lot for a cup of coffee. Like it, 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 that is a lot of money for Facts a cup of coffee for for society right now, right? And uh, unless I feel like the experience has to be heightened to enjoy that seven dollar cup of coffee, even even if the c- cup of coffee itself is the most delicious thing. I mean, is the experience wonderful? Uh, like everything has to be right, and and if someone feels like they've they've been cheated because they bought a seven dollar cup of coffee and it doesn't taste good, like that's that's heartbreaking, and so. Yeah. The, the, uh, yeah, and just to kind of add to that, this is another reason why I think 
it's a little funny in this book and we we had to fight to keep this chapter because there's, there's a chapter in this book that's like go to cafes um, right. and we had to fight to keep it because they were like, why are you putting a chapter about going to cafes in a home coffee book? It's like because if you talk to people who are like the best home coffee, like nerds, the deep on the motorcycle zen maintenance thing of making <laughs> coffee at home and have $100,000 home espresso machines, Briggs, you know, we've seen it. Like they are like, let's go to the cafe. Like right. let's go to the coffee shop and go compare what we're doing. And like cafes have the ability, I think, play a really important vital role in um, creating that um, appreciation and understanding of coffee as a delicacy and like uplifting that whole experience and making it understand why not only should it be $7, but like actually you're getting a deal. You're going to get a deal for sure because you're going to get a water. It's going to be maybe sparkling. You're going to get maybe a little snack with it. It's going to be served in a beautiful, in a beautiful vessel. It's going to be served by a very nice person and it's going to be $7. It's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the sound in the cafe is really good for your brain. Like the, brain, <laughs> like the sound, the noise, the sound noise on the cafe is very good for your brain. Well, we've segued to the cafe part, but I, I guess we're going to have uh, our, our legs in both both uh, territories because I, I want to talk about espresso because espresso is one of those things that I believe in the book you are very polite but you are essentially saying that espresso at home is hot trash so in the first book <laughs> we we are just like don't do it right um, and uh <laughs> that was sort of like a hot take and it was in a book that was kind of modeled around the hot takes or whatever. Yeah. Um, the New Rules of Coffee, 10 Speed Press, 2018, great in, book. In 2018. Fantastic book. You know, I think that you asked a little earlier in the conversation, what are some differences between now and when that book came out? And I think that some of the technology is caught up. I think that the access to on-demand education, particularly through things like YouTube, um, has helped catch up. And um, the, now when I talk to people about Espresso at Home, because we get asked about it all the time, um, now that conversation I think looks a little bit more like, well, how seriously are you going to take your hobby? What do you really want? And just so you know, like, if you think that this is going to be cost-benefit analysis for you, I have really bad news because you're still going to go to the cafe. And, like, even if you get really into it as a hobby, you're still going to go to the coffee shop because you want to, like, compare what you do to the coffee shop, which is what, like, every home espresso geek does. Mm -hmm. Um, So none of the cost-benefit stuff really works. But if you love having it and you're somebody who's, like, my dream is to have a yummy cappuccino at a dinner party at my house, like that's pretty cool. Like I get it. And I think that there's ways to think about wanting to do that um, and approach that, that feel more doable now than they did five years okay. ago to, to us. And so that's why there's more in this book. Yeah. About you've ev- evolved a bit. I mean, Breville seems to be a company that is really, you know, tripled down on home espresso. And I wonder what you think about that machine in particular, or there's multiple machines. It's not one, of course, but there's there's a couple that are quite popular. Yeah, there's definitely been a big push in the market in kind of that under thousand right. dollar range, and we have some stuff in the book that's sort of priced out at different ranges in it. And I think that there's trade offs for all of it. You know, uh, people that I've talked to who have home espresso practices that they're really happy with typically have invested into equipment that's a little bit more expensive. Yeah, it's like five x that. I think that it also implies a kind of a 
cutoff for how much you care, right? Because if you've invested that much, it means you really, really care. Um, there's some people who buy an $1,000 electric guitar and never play it, but most people who buy an $1,000 electric yeah. guitar play it. And I think that that's kind of like what happens with espresso machines a little bit too. There's some people who buy an $100 guitar because they're like, oh, this seems like I'll, I'll learn how to rock out and then they never play it. And I think that happens a lot of times with sort of lower priced home coffee making equipment. Zachary, what is your relationship with espresso? Uh, I, I, well, I, I was a barista for uh, about 12 years and, uh, was introduced to espresso making that way. Uh, and so I've always, like for those 12 years, worked on like very high end machines and, uh, going from that to like a sub $500 espresso machine is kind of a bummer. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, I will say that, like, uh, good friends of mine who have two kids, very busy house, they just bought the Breville Barista Pro, and they mm -hmm. love it, and they use it every single day. They tell me it's so, like, easy. They just, it's, it's, it's you push a button, and it does it all for you, and mm. you can adjust the variables, and it's, uh, it, it works for them. And we they were talking about getting a higher-end machine, and I was like, are you going to dial it in? Are you going to clean up the espresso grounds every morning? Are you going to, like... And they were like, uh, maybe the, the automated one would be better. Yeah. And, it, and it totally works for them. And, and also maintenance is much less. I mean, with yeah. 5,000, you have to maintain it really, really, really like religiously. Yeah, and, and not everything's going to be the right thing for everybody. Like, There's a difference between saying, I want home espresso as good as what I can get at a really good coffee shop. Or saying... I just want to have espresso at home. Like there's actually quite a lot of daylight between those two things mm -hmm. and quite a lot of money between those two things. Right. Okay, so to the cafes, I guess I want to ask you, I'll start with you, Zachary. So what do you look for in a cafe? I mean, meaning if you're like going to London or Seoul and you're, you're going to three spots and you have like, you know, two hours and you got to like make the stops or if you're in a town and it's like one place that is just opened and it's like in a random town that maybe doesn't have a great ro cafe roaster, but you've found it. What are you both looking for when assessing cafes, which Sprudge does so well. I think if you're going to a city, you have to just put the city name, put Sprudge, drop that shit in Google, and you're going to find a great story. I do it all the time. But what? how are you making these lists? What are you looking for? Well, we we rely a lot on on writers that work for us who who are are either local to those cities or have have been in those cities long enough to have a, a really nice opinion about it. Um, me personally, when I'm traveling, and I only have one, you said you said I only have one cafe that sure, I could we go can to. Do that for you in Jordan. We can do like the crawl. I would I would look for the place that I mean that I I would just look for a place like for me. I'm I'm really into baked goods, and that 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 draws my attention. I like I pulled over really fast the other day because I saw cinnamon cinnamon rolls like a sign for it, and I veered. Um, but 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 uh, I I look for the cafe that might have a nice espresso machine uh, that is serving uh, a high-end extra specialty coffee, uh, good food. Uh, those are all things that I'm looking for. Okay. I like that. So it's definitely beyond the coffee, it sounds like for you. For me. But but, yeah. but, but, but that's just because I'm hungry. And, sure, man. Uh, but but, but of course, there are great cafes that yeah. don't have a food program. Yeah, right on. What about you? Um, I think that, uh, you know, like if I'm thinking about coming to New York or I'm thinking about going to LA or going somewhere with like lots of kinds of coffee, um, something that's fun to do is go to 
brand new, cool, haunt new cafe maybe that I read about on Sprudge. Um, and I'm not saying that to be cheeky. I mean, like, literally, I know about it because somebody yeah. wrote about it for us. Um, like, we use it as a discovery engine, too. Um, but I also really love going to, like, third wave vintage cafes, you... <laughs> millennial vintage cafes, um, <laughs> millennial retro cafes, places that were, like, really cool 10 to 15 years ago but are still open and are still doing the thing yeah because sometimes those experiences are great um and i feel like that about coffee shops i also think that like there's something to say about that for restaurants and bars and all those kinds of stuff it's been just long enough now like in the wider sphere of food and beverage including coffee that we can look talk about like a aughts throwback cafe or whatever um but there's some really fun coffee experiences at places like that um and that have been doing it for a really long time and are sort of building blocks of third wave culture but have like grown and refined oftentimes these are places that have had like people who have been part of their team for much of that time and have a lot of experience they're making coffee really great i also think it's really fun increasingly to get to go to pre-third wave or non-third wave cafes that are maybe expressing like drinking coffee in diners or Mm -hmm. um, sort of uh, kind of a more of like an Italian, traditional Italian and European expression of coffee. Um, I think stuff like that's really fun too um, because it like presses a different button in my brain than the third wave coffee stuff does, but it is still part of the culture culture and it's interesting. And I also think like we probably... I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I don't want to speak for you, Zachary. Me, I maybe kind of was like, that's the old, you know, when I was like a snotty millennial 10 years, that's the old way. That's not cool anymore, (laughs) man. But it means I like kind of overlook some of it. So like, I I love going to Puerto Rico when I'm I love Puerto Rico. I love that place. Trading Co., yeah. It's so interesting and cool and like utterly distinct and of itself and has this important thing in coffee history. And um, so I like, I like all of it. I'm glad you you mentioned that. That's a place that I feel like uh, maybe isn't written about that much, but it's been around for a long time. Yeah, anywhere that there's like a you know an urn and a mug of a variety of different chip mugs and Joan Baez, I mean, I'm down to to give them the shot because I love that. That's how I grew up yeah. drinking coffee in the '90s. That was what that that was coffee, especially coffee to me. Uh, to us, it feels like that's breaking rules because third wave, like any revolutionary movement in any cultural setting it creates a new orthodoxy around it, right? So, like, if all you know is third wave um, or you came up in it or whatever for specialty coffee, then that's the new orthodoxy, right? Like, that's that's the way you learned the rules. So going to the stuff that sort of predates that or exists before it has this sort of, like... These guys just don't give a fuck kind of a thing. It's like it's its, its own best. wavelength. It's it's on a total it's different thing. And I love stuff like that. And sometimes the coffee is extremely delicious. Yeah, for sure. Extremely delicious, super dialed. It's like a great roaster. It's like maybe they're roasting it. Yeah, it's, for sure. Let's name names. I feel like this is great. You set this up. You've kind of like given a general sense of what you like, but we haven't actually named names. So this is the assignment. Three cafes that you just adore. It does not have to be one that is the hottest or newest, but ones that you adore around the we'll say world each of you yeah well so i mean just in this context of saying like new york city like i went to uh uh drip coffee nigel's cafe uh, the soho location on varick street this morning we're gonna go to a brasso tomorrow which is classic millennial vintage third wave vintage coffee and then go to puerto rico and to me that feels like that's three really interesting i'll drink very different coffee at all three places it's going to be absolutely delicious and um it you know you can walk between all of it because it's new york yeah it's great zachary yeah uh three uh Uh, ninth 
Street Espresso on 9th and Avenue C. Yeah, the uh, the one far east. You yeah. used to work there, Zach. I used to work oh, there, yeah, cool. which is why I have such an affinity for it. Um, and uh, you just th- then you just walk down uh, 9th Street and then take a, f- a few blocks up to 13th and Third. Uh, Every Man Espresso in the uh, in the in the theater. In the there. theater, yeah, right. That lobby, Street, yeah, 10th, uh, tw- uh, 13th, 10th and Third. Yeah, 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 right. And then uh, and then and then just walk down 13th to Joe. Uh, Right there on Thirteenth and uh, Four, uh, it's uh, yeah over there. Uh, it, it, th- th- that's another wonderful place. Uh, I just I, I love the story that Amy Sedaris used to bake cupcakes called Dusty Cupcakes and 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 would walk them to that cafe. Oh, that's really sweet. I didn't know that story. Well, thank you to Joe for bringing decaf yeah. to this evening event. It's really sweet of them. What's the intel? Are they going to open the pro shop again? I feel like that was such such a loss. I loved that place. You should have Jonathan on the podcast I know. to tell you all about it. <laughs> it's you said that in the past and I haven't followed up. It's it's definitely a question first question. Um let's talk let's go to actually to the kitchen because I, I want to close this conversation and we'll take some questions. Um, about, well, first off, you created your own Manhattan special, which I think is amazing. We're in Manhattan and I have to address that. It's a, I don't know the Manhattan special. Does anyone know what that is? Raise your hand if you had a Manhattan special. Yeah. Imagine those. That's good. So yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's, it's so good. It's, Every one of you is missing out. Please go try one. You can just go to the bodega and buy one. Oh it's my right God. There. It's so good. So explain what it is and how did you make it? So Manhattan Special is one of these like old timey late 19th century New York things that has stuck around as like a New York drink, New York delicacy. Um, it is a pre-bottled soda that's made with a very darkly roasted and sweetened espresso soda. Uh, um, and then they're bottled in these cool kind of art deco looking bottles. It's all made out in Brooklyn. Um, every once in a while, you'll find it out side of New York or out on the West Coast, um, like at an import store or a place that has a big beverage. I'm sure cookbook in Silver Lake has it. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, that kind of a thing or soda, classic soda shop or whatever might have it. But it's a really distinctly New York thing and it's something that like we have sought out and you know, you, you, it's strong stuff. You sort of slug it. It's almost kind of medicinally strong and sweet, this coffee soda. And it's, it's really delicious. And, um, one of the things, uh, you know, in the book that we wanted to try to do to, to unpeel that question of like, you have a bag of coffee, what are all the things you can do with it? Well, like making a coffee, simple syrup is actually really, um, adaptive to lots of different kinds of things. Once you have that, you can cook with it, you can make delicious drinks with it. And what kind of coffee you use to make that simple syrup will dramatically impact the end product. And so to, to make like this, our version of Manhattan Special, we suggest using like, use a specialty coffee, but every, like most specialty coffee roasters, especially like um, if they're a sort of company that's got, let's say eight, cafes or 10 cafes or they've been around for 10, 20 years like a Joe or an Intelligentsia has a dark roast blend because there's passion people who are really passionate about dark roast coffee. That's not something I think we drink all the time in our homes necessarily but um, for this it works It works a treat, man. It's perfect. Um, you make this espresso syrup with very dark roasted coffee um, and then um, mix it with mineral water. Yeah, it's and, great. And, and it's which delicious. is another passion of yours. I love that. Um, why did the espresso martini come back so fucking hard? It was like inescapable, especially like during the pandemic. It's it's still here. You see it everywhere. Surprising for you? Yeah, I think anything, any anytime you can see Timothy Chalamet and Larry David doing the same thing at the same time, that that's 
pretty loudly argues for itself. Yeah. <laughs> I also think it's just a great name. Like I'm a big believer in like a, like the unified theory of like 99% of the reason why anything is cool or popular is because the name's good. Yeah. Like espresso martini is a really lovely yeah. mellifluous phrase to say. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is an important part of why it's popular as well. You are endorsing espresso and sparkling wine in the same glass to be consumed. Together. Not in the same glass. Not in the same glass. Okay, I misread it. I was like, "Holy shit!" Okay, no, no, no. It says about... no. It says like a sidecar. It says I'm sorry, like, I yeah, totally misread yeah, yeah, it. Okay, but yeah. talk about the pairing then. Yeah, it's, it's cool. It's cool. It's a cool, and we're gonna do this at some uh, of the events that we'll do through the fall. Um, yeah, it's an interesting thing to kind of play with. So everybody's brain is queued up to have a shot of espresso and have a little glass of sparkling beverage on the side of it. Um, traditionally, that would be club soda or Pellegrino or some kind of sparkling water. But what that does is it grooves the mental pathway in your brain to associate like an espresso and a little cup of something sparkling. But what that little cup of something sparkling is does not just have to be mineral water. It can be other stuff. Yeah. And um, the people who I think, I don't know if they first first to ever really do this but we sort of had this moment of being like wow this is so cool is at um gnb coffee in los angeles and the go get them tiger espresso bars in los angeles um where from very early on they were serving shots of espresso with a side not a sparkling water but a fizzy hoppy tea yeah they were like the hop water guys from the yeah. beginning yeah. and it's absolutely delicious delicious incredible pairing makes the espresso taste better makes yeah. you think about it as this sort of completed thing and so all credit to them for sort of hipping us to the idea of oh this could be other stuff um and i really like wine a lot and uh thinking about you know what is this other thing then for sparkling stuff and um playing around with like how a lambrusco works with a washed espresso how a champagne would work with a, a like a, a blended espresso um how thinking about some like some pet nat or something that was like mm -hmm. a little more like gluey or natty wine or whatever <laughs> would taste with like some natural processed shot yeah. of espresso that had lots of fruit and flavor in it like there's all these kinds of ways that you can think about i think the key is that you're not necessarily saying pour a whole glass of wine to have with the espresso it's fun to think about it as like a little two ounce pour right. not much more than you would pour of that sparkling water as your sidecar yeah. um anything that, that sort of allows you to trick your brain and be like my brain is used to this but the flavors are different from what i'm used yeah. to yeah lightning round on this is taste we ask guests about their discerning taste so to close the interview Here's a little fast and furious rapid fire, fast and furious. I'm saying it twice because it is twice, two of you doing it at the same time. Too, taste too, check. Too, too fast, too furious. Exactly. Taste check. You guys ready? Ready. Okay. The best breakfast. Wait. You. First? Me. You. Uh, you. Strawberry waffles uh, and uh, the Stumptown Finkel Puente uh, coffee. You answered it. was with the coffee to pair it with. I love that. It's Delicious. really nice. Uh, sturgeon, sturgeon and onion scrambled eggs at Barney Greengrass, the Sturgeon King since 1918. Yeah, represent what's coffee with it? Is uh, there coffee? It, whatever the diner coffee <laughs> whatever is. Whatever they're it's, serving. It's the Barney Greengrass blend, blend diner um, coffee, and it is delicious. The best dessert and the coffee to pair it with? Uh, tiramisu, my favorite dessert, uh, with whatever uh, espresso they're serving with, that, with the tiramisu. Yeah, yeah. I really like rice pudding a lot, and I would like to have that with a glass of dessert wine, please. <laughs> Your favorite New York City restaurant, classic edition? 
You lived here for a while. You probably have one. You go first, Jordan. We're going to go to Jeans later tonight. That's yeah. a pretty good classic New York restaurant. Yeah. Jeans is real good. I'm like, I'm drawing a blank about Jeans. I know there's the new Jeans. The new. It's the same people, and it's like a block away from where the one was that has been around for hundred years. But new, it's the same. But it's the same. It's the new one on Lafayette. No, it's not on Lafayette. No, it's on like West Alamoth. Uh, okay, into it. Yeah, it's it's out. awesome. Yeah, awesome. Okay, you. Uh, Keens. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy. Yeah. Just the rooms are beautiful. Beautiful choice. Uh, favorite Portland restaurant, classic edition. Uh, Portland struggles with classic restaurants, <laughs> and it depends on what you count as classic but there's um a really really great it's kind of i guess it's portland's shape and east or something it's been there not since the 70s but more like the late 90s this place called higgins it's like a great um pacific northwest cuisine really tiny micro farmer markety but they were doing mm -hmm. it make their all their own security but they've been doing it since like the late 90s what an interesting restaurant scene yeah Holy it's, cow. it's fun that's a great place i love to take people from out of town there and they have a great lunch yeah, yourself. Yeah, the Higgins the, the, in the bar, like having lunch yeah. at that bar is so beautiful. What a restaurant. We haven't talked about Portland at all, but... <laughs> That's okay. We try, Portland we, Portland won't miss us. It's okay. You can, you, can leave, <laughs> you can leave Portland for a week and nothing happens. It's fine. <laughs> Parting shot about Portland, though. What's good, what's good right now? We'll take questions. I mean, there's it. lots of awesome stuff. I mean, there's, you know, it's a whole world of awesome stuff. We met a really cool, that, what's that downtown Portland coffee club guy that we met? Do, are we going to be able to pull this out live on the show? No, but uh, Hypnos Coffee just opened this weekend and it is gorgeous. It's yeah, on Hypnos Williams. Coffee. It is uh, mm -hmm. Northeast Portland. Uh, Hypnos is, it, it's, 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 it's so perfect. It's just like simple. They have a, they yeah. have a beautiful slayer. Uh, and I, yeah, it's. I love when you say simple. That is like such a great description. Oh, it's great when you can say something simple and gorgeous. Like yes, yeah. Portland Weekend Coffee Club is that what it's called? Is that close? It's close. He's bringing in cool, the kind of multi roaster thing. He's bringing in lots of coffees from different people, and um, I love it. Yeah, there's always kind of little stuff like that that's popping up in the town. All right, we're stuff. gonna open up for a couple of questions, and then we'll do a signing. Anybody have a question? I, I'm gonna. Well, yeah, here we are. I'm gonna I'm gonna head down. <laughs> oh, sorry, I took Christine. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. I run NYC Undergrounds. It's uh, Coffee Tours of New York City. My name's Kay. Nice to meet you guys. Nice well, to meet you too. Welcome to New York. Um, and as a person in the streets trying to educate people about specialty coffee, how to taste it, how to appreciate it, I'm really looking for advice. Like, how do we teach people to appreciate? specialty coffee is it the role of the coffee industry to do so how does that transformation happen uh i i feel like i feel like that that was like when i was a barista in 2005 the big thing was trying to be as as gentle and sweet and bring people in uh because like the latte art is 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 beautiful and it and it makes people think wow this is special um but the the coffee is is the, the real star um but it, like like trying to figure out how to do that how to like uh, explain what coffee is was, was was always a challenge and you just really have to meet people where they're at and 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 take their hand and and be as as as, as sweet as possible and uh yeah, I feel like 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 everyone that I that I like let, I led public cuppings and everyone I spoke with like everyone has a different idea of what coffee is, uh, and like ninety nine percent of the people loved coffee, 
uh, they didn't necessarily love the like really high-end specialty coffee, but they loved coffee. And I, I really wanted them to to try and appreciate the coffee we were serving. Um, but it, I didn't take it personally if they were like, this isn't for me. But I, I, I feel like not not telling them that they're wrong, that they're drinking the wrong coffee and my coffee is the best coffee. Like that's the, not the way to, to bring people in. Yeah, just to kind of echo to that, something we talk about a lot, um, you know, day over day f- for publishing Sprudge, and then thinking about with with our new book, um, very much so. This idea of how do you talk to every kind of coffee drinker at the same time? Um, how do you talk to people who know more than you do about ratios and gear and what's new and what's hip, and people who maybe have been drinking coffee for longer than you've been alive, but have a way of doing that that's very kind of set and tailored to them and it might not look like what we think specialty coffee or or fancy coffee is supposed to look like. How do you talk to everybody at the same time? Um, And the answer is is that it's really hard um, and you have to care about doing it and um, keep coming back to it over and over and over again um, in whatever your practice is. Um, and for us, that's in journalism and writing is coming back to that again and again and again. Um, does this bring people in? Does it alienate? Are we walking the tightrope of having it be for as many people as possible? Um, and it, it's hard uh, to do. Um, <laughs> but uh, it it ends up being, uh, the I think for us, has served as a guiding light for the kind of work that we want to do. So in New York, I've noticed the rise of breakfast tacos accompanying a lot of coffee vendors and cafes. If you guys were to suggest to future cafe owners um, a pairing that you suggest would go well as a staple for all cafes to have in their glass case, what would you suggest? Uh, well, well, I would love it if at like 1 p.m., 2 p.m., uh, the the toaster oven kicked on and fresh baked cookies were prepared, you know, just like maybe six. And the, just fill the whole cafe up with the smell of cookies, bring people in from the street. Uh, like Courier Coffee in Portland has one of my favorite chocolate chip cookies with sea salt, pairs so well with their cortado. Uh, yeah, more cookies, please. Can we talk about culture? Yeah. Culture. Sorry. Culture espresso. I mean, that's just the cookie of the, of my life. Awesome. So. Yeah. yeah. Who else? One more. Are there any trends coming down the pike that we should be on the lookout for? Yeah, we. Um, uh, I think this year we're gonna do like a what's hot, what's hot, what's not, but like two truths and a lie style. Like it'll, we'll do like two things that we actually think will be popular next year and one that's just ridiculous and will never happen and we'll try to make you guess which one is going to be the thing. No, um, you know, the thing that um, kind of keeps coming up a lot and we're having people who write for us pitch us about it often and we're having the chance to try it uh, in cafes and from good roasters is all of these sort of co-fermented coffees. Have you tried any of those, the sort of fruit co-fermented coffees? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and that is a big catch-all term um, that can refer to all of these different kinds of ways of adding organic material that isn't coffee to the coffee drying and processing methods that are done like at the farm level where coffee is grown. Um, and so there's all these different ways of doing it. People do it with all these different kinds of fruits. Um, and um, it is capable of creating flavor profiles and aromas in coffee that almost are like if you ever had like a like a blueberry flavored coffee or a hazelnut coffee where it's got like an additive right it's like able to do that but organically it's not i don't know if it's as dramatic and it's certainly not as like kind of i think sometimes the the fruit flavored just sprayed coffees it can be kind of chemically or whatever um but like this is doing it with natural materials and there's a lot of really interesting Stuff about it has some really interesting implications at the coffee producer, coffee farmer level, which is cool too, um, particularly when you're talking about being able to get more money for crops of coffee or to make the most out of coffees that on their own may not have scored as high or garnered as much money in the trading system. There's a lot of interesting implications for that, which is cool. And um, the coffees that I have personally experienced with it tend to be all over the map. I've had ones that I thought were awesome. I've had ones that I thought were uh, weird and like I, I didn't love them in the moment but then I was thinking about them the rest of the day um, I went to a coffee shop in Tacoma Washington which is where Zachary and I uh, grew up um, uh, called Naomi Joe really cool young interesting coffee roaster coffee shop in Tacoma Washington and this guy is doing espresso that was processed with grapes like that. And then you drop it in a lager beer that's brewed to like this old Tacoma lager beer brewing recipe that's been around for 150 years. Yes. And it's this like grapefruit espresso or like not – it's like this like grape espresso beer like bomb that you drink. And it's unbelievably good and like super weird. And like I don't know if that is third wave coffee even. Like I don't know what that is. But it's super interesting. And um, I think that uh, people really like it. Customers really like it. It's There's something about it that's like interesting and grabs people and fascinating. And there appears to be more and more interest and kind of velocity around this being something that people dig and are into. And I don't, I think that that's going to keep going, keep going, keep going. I think a brandy wine. I think it's in Maryland. Yeah, they do a yeah. co-fermented with passion fruit. Cool, it's pretty nice. Well, I want to thank Jordan and Zachary. Thank you so much for joining. I appreciate you being here, and and I want to thank, thank our you. producers Pat and Clayton, and thank you Christine at Rizzoli. It's so great having events here. We have a couple more coming up. Thank you so much. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.